Welcome back to Supreme Myths, a different kind of Supreme Myths today, um, because my guest is, uh, she's an expert on the First Amendment, but she's also an expert on corporate law. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about corporate law today. So I'm here to learn from her. Um, this is not a, this is going to be a, a podcast that has some con law in it, but also a lot of corporate law in it. Her name is Sarah Hahn. She is the class of 1958. I hope I get this right. Uncas and Ann Mc. Teria, professor of law. I got that wrong. She's a chaired professor at Washington and Lee University. Um, she graduated from Yale uh, College and Columbia Law School. She is absolute expert on corporate law and democracy. She worked for Davis Polk. Um, we actually met at a con law conference where she was doing her corporate law slash con law stuff, which I found very fascinating. Sarah, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. I I'm really excited about this. So, um, I, I want to begin here. You, you've just written, um, I'm not even sure what the right term of art is, so you'll tell me in a second, some kind of letter uh, to, to um, the SEC about the First Amendment, the SEC, and climate change. And I want to say that again. First Amendment, Securities Exchange Commission, and climate change. Can you tell the story of what this is about, why it's important, and what you're doing? Yeah, sure. So the, the letter that you're talking about is a, is a comment letter. So the United States Securities and Exchange Commission has proposed a new rule, a new disclosure rule related to corporate uh, climate risk information. And so the way that administratively this works is the SEC proposes a rule and they sort of put it out there for public comment. And then um, companies, issuers, shareholders and investors, you know, and, and academics write in with their public comments. And there's this sort of period of public comment which is now over for that rule, by the way. And then um, the Securities and Exchange Commission reads thousands of comment letters and then generates a final rule. So we're waiting for the final rule. But so what's going on? Oh, is, hold on one second. Do they really read the yeah. thousands of letters? Not only do they read them, but they quote them. So there's a final rulemaking release where the, and they're often very lengthy, wow. where the Securities and Exchange Commission explains why it has you know, finalize the particular rule that it's finalized. And they will quote from the comment letters, particularly academic comment letters. Um, and then, you know, inevitably when the rule, this particular rule, when it's finalized, will be challenged on probably administrative law grounds and First Amendment grounds. When it gets challenged, it gets up into the courts. The courts are quoting, uh, and the litigants are quoting from the rulemaking uh, release. And so actually the process, it's sort of this interesting process that corporate law professors get involved with and securities regulation professors get involved with a lot. And it, you know, it has some significance. So I was, um, I have a lot going on, but I put some of that to the side because I felt a lot of urgency around this particular issue. So I wrote a, I wrote a letter, I signed on to some other groups, letters, uh, comment letters. This, the SEC um, is in the process of issuing some new disclosure mandates to public companies. Okay. So let's uh, back up for one second, just because there are yeah. some non-lawyers listening to this. The, yeah. the Securities Exchange Commission regulates the, if I get this wrong, tell me, the buying and selling of securities. In that, in that role, they issue rules, administrative law rules, we'll talk about that more in a minute, um, that, that regulate that field. Is that, do I have that correct? Yeah, that's right. The, the SEC is the federal regulator. Actually, many, most states have a state regulator, too, for companies, smaller companies and, and other okay. um, 
you know, issuers in those states. But the SEC is the national leader. And yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, so, so um, you know, there's this enormous demand now on the part of investors for what's called ESG information. And so your readers or, or listeners might not be familiar with that, but ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And it's kind of a buzzword that's used to mean, like, um, social policy uh, information, political information that, about corporate operations. And so investors, there's really this huge progressive movement underway uh, among investors to incorporate uh, social policy information into securities decision-making. So that includes like how you design your investment portfolio and how you vote your stock. And so uh, for the last, you know, 10 or 20 years, there's been significant demand on the part of investors for ESG disclosures. Companies have resisted those disclosures. And now the Biden SEC has come out and has started issuing some new rules that require these kinds of disclosures to meet this investor demand. And the first one that they've led with is the climate risk disclosure rule. So uh, they've proposed you know, very lengthy proposals, like more than 500 pages of uh, text explaining all of these new uh, disclosure requirements that relate to uh, climate change and how climate risk impacts a reporting company's financial condition. And so um, this is all leading up, I think, to a big uh, First Amendment challenge on the grounds that this disclosure mandate violates corporations' free speech rights. And so that's where I come in. That's, that's right. sort of my... Before we get to that question, which, which I really i am so fascinated by, um, and may even have some strong opinions on the First Amendment side, before we get there, 500, you said 500 pages of rules, is that what you said, or, or requirements? or? Well, the proposal was 500 pages, very lengthy, sort of explaining the requirements and right. what they're thinking. So, so, so this question is out of left field, and it may betray my ignorance of this subject matter. Although I do want to say my very first Law Review article ever was co-authored, was about securities. So I want to... I started off, my first article ever was about securities, not con law, but that was 1984, and it was about arbitration and Wilco versus Swan and all that stuff. But anyway, um, so I'm a company, and now let's say this rule passes, and let's say eventually the courts uphold it. Don't I have to hire an army of lawyers to figure out what these 500 pages mean? No, I mean, these companies already have armies of lawyers. I don't don't mean hire, but spend money on doing that. Yeah, sure. I mean, it costs a little bit of money. I mean, I don't think it's actually that uh, the companies always push this button and say, oh, woe is us. You know, this is extremely burdensome on us. But I think, uh, you know, I mean, I was in corporate. I was a Wall Street lawyer for for years before I went into academia. I think that's kind of um, exaggerated. And and companies have all these armies of lawyers. Anyway, these these rules don't apply to every mom and pop company, right? The SEC only regulates, you know, public companies, large, very, very large companies that are already doing a ton of disclosure. So anyway, okay. you know. Okay. So First Amendment issues, go ahead. Well, actually, before I get that, what, so what kind of things would companies have to disclose under this new rule or new rules that they're not disclosing now? Well, there's a host of, I think there's sort of nine categories of new disclosures. And the idea is that, you know, all these sort of ways in which climate risk climate change could impact the company's bottom line are going to are going to get disclosed. So, for example, 
you know, regulatory changes, particularly overseas, you know, in Europe and other uh, countries, uh, the, there's more rigorous regulation related to climate change than we have in the United States. And that affects, you know, for global companies, all these companies have global operations and it affects their, their bottom line. They're supposed to disclose information about regulatory risk. I'll give you another example, which I think is really interesting. Um, the proposed rule would require companies to disclose zip code information or geographic location information for factories and operations. And so the idea there is that, you know, a lot of companies have their factories located in places, um, coasts, think coastlines, where, you know, rising oceans could affect uh, the factories, actually could, could cause them to need to be relocated, which is very expensive. And that these costs have not adequately been factored into corporate valuation. And that because companies aren't really looking ahead and uh, valuing themselves and their operations on the basis of these risks, investors can do it. And so if you disclose, for example, the zip code of your factories and investors have that information, investors can basically go onto the Internet. I mean, this is I'm oversimplifying here a little bit because a lot of the investors that use this information are very sophisticated. But, you know, they can take that zip code information. They can say, oh, yes, your factories are in this area on the coast that's going to be subject to rising oceans. And so we can anticipate, you know, that in the next 20 years, you're going to have to completely relocate all of your factories. And that's very expensive. Right. Um, and then they value your company. You know, they adjust their valuation of your company on that basis. And so there are, like I said, nine categories of information. There's scope one, scope two, and scope three. Emissions information has to be disclosed. But, um, and we don't know which of these disclosure requirements will survive the rulemaking process and will still be there in the final rule. Right. But, you know, it's kind of a range of, of disclosures. Okay, so, so let's make this a little bit, as a great explanation, thank you. Uh, let, let's make this a little bit simple for, First Amendment purposes. Let's just let's just say, let's just talk about. You have to disclose zip codes, like you just said, um, of your factories, and maybe you have to disclose any um, uh, environmentally relevant aspects of your company that might make your company uh, less valuable in the future, or something like that. Whatever. My understanding is we've had the SEC since about the New Deal that we've been regulating the securities industry since about the New Deal. Um, I don't think there have been any successful First Amendment challenges to the authority of the SEC to require disclosures from corporate from corporations and others. Um, play devil's advocate for a minute. I, mean, I didn't tell you I was going to do this, and you may not like it, but you're the plaintiff's lawyer. You're challenging this under the First Amendment. What's your strongest argument? Well, the, the companies are going to argue um, – I don't know that I agree. This is they're going to lead with the idea that this is a a political disclosure, right? We know this already because there are two states attorney generals who are, or attorneys general who yeah. have come forward and said, when you issue this rule, we will challenge it on First Amendment grounds because we think this is just political nonsense. And so uh, we think this is your your compelling political speech, right? Not garden variety securities disclosure. Because climate change is controver politically controversial. Oh, my God. And you're so killing me. People... You're killing me. Yeah, I got it. Okay. Yeah. 
No, but this is the argument. So again, I'm not sure this is the strongest. I'll go back and, and yeah. think about the strongest argument. Yeah. But we know they're going to lead with this idea that, you know, not everybody agrees with climate change. And so here you are requiring companies to take on all these new costly burdens of disclosure around climate change. And this is really just ideological. And so therefore, it should be reviewed by a court uh, using strict scrutiny, right, under under the First Amendment as political speech. That's that's coming. That's an argument. And for the non-lawyers out there, strict scrutiny means the highest standard of judicial review, and very few laws or regulations survive strict scrutiny. Okay, go ahead. Okay. And you disagree with all of that, obviously. Oh, well, I mean, I don't think... So, you know, to, to, to back up here a little bit, garden variety securities regulation has uh, long been understood to fall outside the scope of the First Amendment. I mean, so... I know that sounds a little crazy to say that speech is sort of outside the scope of the First Amendment, but as you were just noting, securities disclosure, securities regulation predates sort of the modern First right. Amendment regime, right? It was right. in place largely, you know, in the form that we have it now in the 1930s, and um, the Supreme Court has never uh, applied rigorous First Amendment review to a securities disclosure mandate. And today, you know, in the 21st century, there are there's a lot of information that companies are required to disclose. We've never really, you know, considered that information to be subject to First Amendment review. If it was subject to First Amendment review, right, we would live in a completely different world. I think a lot of disclosure mandates wouldn't survive First Amendment review. So, I mean, I start from the proposition that, uh, you know, all of this stuff has long fallen outside, you know, the scope of First Amendment review. And if we're going to, it's a, it's a significant change to the law, would be a significant change to the law to suddenly say, oh, disclosure mandates like this have to be subject to rigorous First Amendment review, Not, let alone strict scrutiny. I would object to intermediate scrutiny, exacting scrutiny, scrutiny. I, would accept, <laughs> I, I, would, I don't want any scrutiny right. because, you know, this is how investors basically protect themselves. Well, let, so let me throw something in here from a con law perspective. Um, Many people don't know this. I, I mean, lawyers know this, but a lot of people don't know this. What we call commercial speech, which is basically speech involving advertising and speech involving uh, commercial transactions, which, of course, everything about securities is, that was an e – the Supreme Court was very clear in the 1960s that commercial speech – was not 1930s, 1960s – that commercial speech was outside, completely outside the scope of the First Amendment and not protected at all. That only changed when Justice Powell joined the court and convinced his brethren to bring commercial speech into um, the First Amendment orbit at all. And then everyone knows about, not everyone, most people who follow this stuff know that the Roberts Court has turned the First Amendment into kind of an anti-regulatory Lochner-type device. My question to you is, 20 years ago, would anybody have thought that securities disclosures would be subject to First Amendment review? Well, I mean, no. I mean, I, I think, you know, all of this is radical. I mean, it's right. really right. shocking in a lot of ways. I mean, even, you know, if you think about Virginia Pharmacy and the cases that came after that that established the commercial speech doctrine, the Supreme Court expressly said in some of these opinions, we do not mean to bring securities regulation into the scope of the First Amendment. It's, it's explicit in some of these opinions. And so... Um, you know, the way to shoehorn it in here, and I think what we're going to see the plaintiff's lawyers try to do 
is to say, well, this is not really securities disclosure. This is something, sure, 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 you know, there was, there's this core set of securities disclosures like what we were getting in the New Deal, but uh, this is something different. This is radical leftist ESG, um, you know, newfangled disclosures that should be treated differently. And I think that's the set of arguments that I, at least I'm worried about because I think it's going to get some play from the current SCOTUS. And your response to that argument, um, I assume, is very skeptical and very antagonistic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, investors, sure, the, the things that investors care about change over the decades, right? And so, I mean, yeah, in the New Deal, investors were not that concerned with climate change because <laughs> I think it wasn't, it wasn't understood as being potentially relevant to corporate finance, a company's financial condition right. or the economy writ, writ more broadly. Um, but there's no question, right? There really can be no serious contention today that investors don't care a lot about how climate change is impacting the economy. Uh, and how it is impacting the particular uh, prospects of any one given company, especially, of course, you know, think of oil and gas companies, but every company, really. Sure. And so because we know investors care about it a lot, there's tons of evidence of that. You know, it's not that remarkable that investors want this information and want to incorporate it into their valuation of companies. And in that regard, this kind of disclosure is no different from other kinds of standard garden variety Securities disclosure. So I think you're going to see you're going to see companies objecting and trying to distinguish this ESG, not just climate risk, but all social disclosure. Right. Try to distinguish that from real securities disclosure, and and the Securities Exchange Commission and law professors like myself pushing back against that argument. Right. So a comment and then a question. My, my comment is from a lay perspective, and I'm a lay person when it comes to securities law. Um, I, I cannot imagine a world where the government would not be allowed to tell big big corporations, often multinational corporations, if you want to sell your stock in this country, if you want to sell your securities, you have to disclose X, Y, and Z before you do so. That seems to be an incredibly reasonable, constitutional, obvious, correct um, I'm not talking about public policy now, but as a matter of constitutional law, it's just, how can that be controversial? You, I mean, it's, you're, you're engaged in interstate commerce. You're selling a product. Um, and so, so, for example, I, I think I have a lot of friends who won't invest in companies that do damage to the environment. How do you know if they're doing damage to the environment? Um, and I'm, I'm assuming there are institutions. My colleague, Ann Tucker, who I know you know, um, and Ann's yeah. wonderful. Um, you know, Ann has told me for years the Supreme Court doesn't even understand the, the notion that it's institutional investors we're talking about here, mostly not in, they're sophisticated and they have the constituencies. And how can we not want to know if these companies are, are damaging the, or potentially damaging the environment? How can that be a problem? So that's my comment. Um, my, yeah, what? no, that's exactly right. I mean, I think, you know, there are a lot of interests at stake here. I think that uh, investors want to, we're so dependent on the stock market, right, for our retirement right. and, you know, our prospering, right, our flourish, human flourishing. <laughs> yeah. And so it's natural that people want their investments to reflect their values. Uh, and so certainly, you know, if the First Amendment were interpreted in a way that prevented the government from requiring uh, these kinds of disclosures, you know, investors 
wouldn't be able to take that information into account and uh, in designing, you know, what we might think of as like self-actualizing yeah. investment portfolios, like what yeah. you're describing. Yeah. But just to push back on what you said a little bit, I do think there are probably some things that the, that the state, some disclosures that the state could require that would probably push up against the First Amendment. So, for example, not, and these aren't in play, you know, nobody's suggesting that these are being uh, proposed, but, you know, if uh, the uh, future Trump administration, for example, were to require companies to disclose the political affiliation of boards of directors or the religious affiliation of CEOs, right, you can imagine that people would have a legitimate First Amendment objection to that. It's just that, you know, climate risk disclosure and some of these other social policy and political spending disclosures, you know, are just the disclosure of spending information and financial condition information. And, yeah. you know, it's it's not it's, it's easy to distinguish. From I'm, I'm pushing back on what you just said a little bit. And I'm in trouble here arguing with an expert. But it, it seems to me it would de- your religious example, your political affiliation example. I don't need the First Amendment for that. I would say, is there a rational basis for the government to require that? If there is a rational basis for the government, a reasonable basis, uh, a real reasonable basis, not the fake rational basis test the court uses, but if there was a reasonable basis to require that disclosure, I would allow it. And if there isn't, I wouldn't allow it. I don't need the First Amendment for that. I think that, is that crazy what I just said? That's not crazy. I mean, I guess I would just say, you know, investors... (laughs) If investors were interested in information, you could make an argument yeah. that the reasonable basis is that investors wanted the information. I mean, you know, I don't want to blow that example up too much, right. but I do think that uh, there probably is a First Amendment line there somewhere, but we're okay. just not up against it at all in any respect with ESG disclosure. Well, I- and I think that I want your your listeners to really understand um is that this? There's a huge and really important movement now, a private ordering movement in the securities markets, to uh, to impound essentially social policy information, climate risk, environmental information into uh, investment decisions as basically a means to discipline companies. Why? Because the government is not disciplining companies. So we have kind of a political failure. And private investors are stepping in and they're saying, we want this information so we can discipline companies. And now you're getting these arguments, of course, from powerful actors saying, well, no, you can't have that information. Yeah. Sarah, let me let me throw an idea at you. Um, the First Amendment line for me, again, I know nothing about securities, but I know a lot about the First Amendment. And I'll tell you the line. I don't think the government can say to a company, um, you have to divulge your Republican uh, people who are in the Republican Party, but you don't have to divulge those in the Democratic Party, or you have to d- divulge those who gave to these kinds of organizations, but not. The- I think viewpoint-based restrictions on speech would be very problematic, and maybe content-based, though I don't think so. I don't think so. But I think that's the line. The line is viewpoint-based distinctions. And if it's not, if it's, you have to disclose the political affiliations of your entire board of director- directors, I have zero First Amendment problem with that, if, if there's a rational reason to do it. Zero, zero problem at all. Is that incoherent or does that make sense? No, that's coherent. And, you know, certainly, uh, you know, I just add to that any kind of disclosure mandate that required a company to adopt an ideological position. Sure. So, you know, the, 
the, the, the current rule that's on the table doesn't require companies to say, for example, we believe that climate change is caused by human beings and is, right. you know, increasing the, the right. global climate. But, you know, if the rule said something like that, sure. I think companies should sure. be able to push back against that. Because that's not what this rule is doing at all. Right. And, and let's be clear, the government can't do that to anybody. So it doesn't matter. The government can't make anybody adopt that kind of point of view. So I don't, you know, that's not a securities specific rule. That's just a rule. Um, I have a real big concern about all this. We And we didn't, people who listen to my podcast know, I, I send my guests a general roadmap, but we always deviate and I like spontaneity. We didn't talk about this, I don't think, but I want to ask you about it. This comes from my Supreme Court expertise, not my complete ignorance of securities laws. I'm more worried about delegation. I don't know what Congress has delegated to the SEC, but it would be a very small, I would not be surprised at all if the court said, you've never required climate change type disclosures before, now you are. That's a major change, a major question. And now, and unless Congress gives you the explicit authority to do it, you can't do it. That argument I'm very worried about. What about you? Yeah, so I'm less of an expert in the administrative law aspects here, but I agree with you. I actually think there are two major ways that this rule will be challenged. One is the way you just described, the administrative law way, and the other way is the one that I specialize in, the First Amendment. And for various reasons, I actually think the safer route for the Supreme Court to take is the administrative law route. Because I think that you're kind of opening Pandora's box with the First Amendment approach, and they may not want to do that. And so I think that the rule and the SEC's general authority to require ESG disclosures is threatened, right, by uh, this new West Virginia case and this new approach to uh, delegation. So, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think that um, (laughs) for various reasons, conservative interests do not want this corporate information disclosed. Of course not. And there are so many ways that they are finding to press that argument. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, in, I feel like it was maybe March, um, Mike Pence, you know, the former president, uh, <laughs> vice, vice president of the United States, and, and maybe the future president, right, because we know he's going to run again. He authored an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in which he basically, it was a very interesting op-ed where he said, you know, ESG is the enemy of uh, the Republican Party and and the Republicans need to kill ESG. And I think that's really a sign of, you know, corporate law professors, when we talk about this among ourselves, we're sort of like, wow, what is going on? It's like the politicization of this thing that we just used to think of as, as securities disclosure. And I think that this enormous politicization process uh, push is coming to kill, again, to kill the disclosure of corporate information that could be used to discipline companies. I, I agree with that. I, but since you mentioned it on a, on a much lighter note, I would like to tell people listening that the subject of Mike Pence op-eds come up. I have to mention that in 1999, while he was a disc jockey or a right-wing radio host, which is where he began, Mike Pence authored a op-ed 
that very strongly argued that the Disney kid movie Mulan, the first one, not the second one, the Disney movie Mulan was actually a conspiracy between Disney and others to get uh, women in the military in combat roles. And that was the, the raison d'etre of the movie Mulan. Um, that tells you what I think of Mike Pence's op-eds in general. Um, they shouldn't be taken they should be taken seriously now because of who he is, but the content of his op-ed should not be taken seriously because, in my opinion, he's not a serious person, but we'll leave that for another day. He really wrote that op-ed. I'm not kidding. It's one of the worst op-eds I've ever read in my entire life. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. Um, all right. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, and if you read this, and if you read it, actually, it is funny in the telling. If you read it, you would just cry because it's so bad and so awful and so terrible. Um, all right. Let's leave that issue behind us. Um, what I think I want to leave that issue is – I'm incoherent today. Um, there is this really, I think, important rule coming from the SEC about climate change. I, I think it's a good rule. I think you think it's a good rule if it comes out the way you want it to. It's going to be challenged, and the Supreme Court is going to strike it down. That's what's going to happen, um, and it's going to be bad. And um, that's what I think, and the, unless the court changes between now and then because this is an anti-regulatory court all the way down. That's what it is. And do you disagree with that prediction? No, I think that I think they will. If they get their hands on it, I think they will at least cut parts of it back. Yeah. And I do want to make this point that, you know, there are there are experts who believe that climate change has not currently been um, accounted for in the stock market, that it's not being impounded into stock prices. And if that's correct, I mean, this, I think, hits home for a lot of your listeners. What that means is that climate change um, could pose the risk. I mean, obviously, it's problematic for a lot of reasons, but it could pose the risk of a market correction or a, a market shock in the future. If companies are not taking account of that information and investors are not allowed to get that information, we could be sort of hurtling towards some sort of market shock or even recession. And it's really is about people's retirements, people's ability to save and invest to have a retirement, right? This this cuts, I think, you know, close to the bone for many Americans, you know. So that's one of the reasons I think the rule is so important is so that investors can can get in there, get into the mix, and hopefully get corporate valuations closer to, you know, an accurate valuation, whatever that means, so that we don't have some sort of terrible market correction in the future right at the time when, you know, you can't even go outside. Right. Thank, thank you for that. I, I, that's a great statement. And um, I think it's a real problem. I, I do. And I, I, think, I think we are going to suffer from that someday. But anyway, all right, moving on. Um, so you and I, I think, uh, disagree about one of the most controversial cases in American history, really. Um, it's the only case that a Democratic nominee for president, I think, has ever suggested should be a litmus test for um, Supreme Court nominees. Maybe, maybe someone said that about Roe, but I don't think so. And that's, of course, Citizens United. Um, Hillary Clinton said she would not appoint any justices who wouldn't reverse Citizens United, um, which is both a First Amendment case and a corporate law case, as Kent Greenfield and Ann Tucker, Ann Tucker and you, and I, I discussed with all three of you because I don't know nothing about corporate law and you guys are the experts. Here is my soundbite defense, not of the reasoning, which is horrific, but of the result. It's my view that in the United States of America, the federal government cannot censor a political movie made by a nonprofit ideological corporation. 
and especially can't censor it within 60 days of an election. At the heart of Citizens United was a political movie criticizing Hillary Clinton that the producer wanted to put in, I think, theaters, but certainly homes, um, criticizing Democrats and criticizing Hillary Clinton. And under the law at the time, the government said, sorry, you can't do that. And then one more caveat. When Justice Kagan was Solicitor General, she argued the case the first time around. It got held over for a year. And she was asked, could the government censor a book about Hillary Clinton by the same organization? And she had no answer for that. She fumbled. It was embarrassing. Um, The reason, in my opinion, she had no answer was there is no answer. Now, I think you're here to defend the result in Citizens United. I will shut up. Go ahead. Oh, well, I mean, I don't see Citizens United as a case about censorship. It's a case about who funds particular political speech. And I think, you know, would your answer be the same if the non-ideological nonprofit was 51% funded by Chinese nationals? Could the government censor that? If the film is going to be shown in America, no. Oh, so you, okay, so so maybe we have more points of disagreement. So you do you believe that then foreign nationals should be able to spend money to influence American voters? I believe foreign, <laughs> you're very good. Um, Uh, which I knew that's why I invited you on. Um, I believe foreign nationals have the right to distribute political speech in America to Americans. I think I believe that. But but, but let's be clear. Citizens United did not involve that. So we're we're moving. I mean. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. But I mean, I guess my I see the line that you're drawing, you know, with with a nonprofit. I think there are good reasons uh, to, for the court to have hold, to have held, which it did not hold, uh, that nonprofits <clears throat> could spend money in that way, but for-profit corporations no, I'm can't. in favor I of think, that. I'm in favor of that. Yeah. I mean, that would have been a much better line to, to draw in that case. Uh, I just have no problem whatsoever with, uh, you know, the state uh, prohibiting for-profit corporations from spending money to influence voters, almost like in any, you know, way. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Well, you, um, but no, that can't be right. The New York Times not only can write op-eds about the upcoming election themselves, but we have to be able to allow the New York Times, a for-profit corporation, to hire people to make, to write op-eds about the upcoming yeah, election. Yeah, well, that's right. But the, there's a separate clause, right, uh, from the Constitution that relates to well, that. Well, not according so. to Eugene Volokh, there isn't. No, the, the press clause is completely subsumed into the, and he's the expert. So I, now other people disagree with that. But all right, well, then, then, is that what you're going to rely on there? That the New York Times is, a, is the media and different rules apply? Yeah, no, I think media companies, yeah, that's right. What it's, about bloggers? What about bloggers? Well, me, I blog on Dorf on Law. What about me? Am I a media person? I have a podcast. Yeah, aren't you? So I, so I, I, if I formed a nonprofit, if I formed a, if I formed a, so wait, so I have the right to write, to spend money, even if I incorporate this podcast, this podcast has the right, because it's nonprofit, to spend money any way I want to, because I'm a media corporation. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't have a problem with that. But, you know, the, we really do have a problem in American democracy with uh, for-profit companies spending tons of money to try to influence uh, voters and to get particular political outcomes. It happens in candidate elections. It happens in 
ballot initial uh, initiatives and referenda, right? Think of a couple of years ago in California when Uber and Lyft bankrolled that that proposition that uh, would have. Well, I mean, they got the outcome that they wanted. They spent like two hundred million dollars, and they and they won. I mean, big big surprise, right? And then it had uh, major consequences for their operations. And I think you know that that is terrible for democracy. And we need to be structuring our electoral rules to prevent that from happening. We've had a, almost a complete corporate takeover, I think, of a lot of our democratic uh, system, well, unfortunately. Well, I, well, I'm not. I'm not sure. I mean, so so and and my information here comes from both um, Kent Greenfield a little bit and Adam Winkler, who wrote a great book about corporations and personhood. Um, I I mean, these are hard issues. Don't when it comes to for profit corporations, I think these are hard issues. But that's just that's just before we get to for profit corporations, the creator of Hillary, the movie was a nonprofit ideological corporation. Now, would and so. I think a better result in Citizens United would have been to say the government cannot censor a movie or book or any kind of artistic expression by a nonprofit ideological conversation, uh, corporation and will leave all other issues for another day, which is, how they, which, well, is, which is what Roberts wanted until Kennedy talked him out of it. D- do you agree with that? You know... The nonprofit in question in that case had taken funding for the film from for-profit corporations. And I think that's the problem there, that, or that's the line that I would draw. They, if they had not taken funding from for-profit corporations, uh, then I don't see any reason why they couldn't have um, made that film and, and distributed it you know, in the electioneering period that yeah. they wanted to, yeah. to do. Um, yeah, I mean, but the introduction, you know, they knew exactly what they were doing. They set that case up. They, uh, it's not a censorship case just to push back against that a little bit again, Eric, um, you know, it was really about how to fund a movie that they, they knew from the beginning how they were going to try to distribute that movie. And so, um, it's not sort of a, a censorship case. Well, I, well think. That, I, I think this is interesting. I, th- I think the audience will enjoy it. So I want to keep pushing on this. Um, so plan, so Planned Parenthood, um, Planned Parenthood, a nonprofit organization, uh, decides uh, that it wants to back certain political candidates in whatever, you know, in Atlanta, whatever, pick a city. Um, and they want to make a movie about the candidate they're opposing. It's expensive. And Planned Parenthood gets contributions, not not earmarked, but contributions from for-profit companies. I just can't believe the government can tell Planned Parenthood, you're not allowed to make a movie about a candidate who is anti-choice, um, who is terribly anti-choice, um, and within 60 days or 30 days, I forget what it was, I think 60, within 60 days of, of, of that election, um, just because you get donations from for-profit companies, I, I what? How is that not censorship? I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I understand. I'm not sure well, I, understand. I just think if everybody understands what the rules are going into it, you just follow the rules. I mean, it's not that hard. Sure, you know, Planned Parenthood. You know, I'm a supporter of, course, of women's course. reproductive rights, yes, yes. which is probably why you use that uh, yes. that example. Yes, but <laughs> you know, if they want to make that movie and there's a rule that says that they can't take 
uh, donations from for-profit corporations, you know, to distribute that movie within 60 days of a national election, they should just follow that rule, right? I mean, we separate funds all the time. That's what corporate PACs, separate segregated funds, right? We Segregation is okay, and I think that they would probably find the funding for a film like that. So it just doesn't, it, it doesn't break my heart that they, that Planned Parenthood couldn't take money from, I don't know, ExxonMobil or Ben and Jerry's, I, I, okay. you know, to fund I, that film. I think, as we expected, we'll have to agree to disagree on that <laughs> part of it. Um, but I do. So the line I want to draw, which I'm, you're going to tell me is incoherent. And I don't. I won't argue with you. But the line that I want to draw is um, corporations can express anything they want, because I think that's First Amendment stuff. Um, what they can't do is give money away directly to either candidates or organizations that directly support candidates. I have no problem with the rule that is, is a, there's, a, there's a maximum amount a for-profit company can provide for the youth because we know that these, these PACs are not independent. We know these are not independent expenditures. Rick Hasen, many others have demonstrated that. It's not a close call. So why can't we draw the line there? You can say whatever you want and you can write a book on whatever you want and you can do a movie on whatever you want. What you can't do is turn the money over directly to the campaign or indirectly to an organization that is going to support the campaign. Why isn't that a better line? Well, campaign finance law makes a bright line distinction between something that you are eliding there, right? I mean, giving money directly to a candidate is a contribution and giving money to a third-party organization is an independent expenditure. But, and but they're not independent. It's, it's, a dumb, it's a dumb line. They're not independent. I mean, certainly after Citizens United, we've seen a lot of evidence that that's the case. I mean, it's really disappointing, right, the way that, that things have, have worked out since Citizens United. Um, I mean, the, the solution that you propose isn't crazy. Okay. Uh, I, I'll take I just, it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just feel like, you know, it is dicey at best to suggest that the founders thought that First Amendment free speech rights extended to corporations and I just don't buy any of that. And I feel like we, this, the government should be able to make reasonable limits on corporate, for at least for-profit corporate expenditures to influence our political system because it is really harmful to our democracy. Sarah, let me be clear. What you just said understates the, because I have written about this at length, that this I know about. There is no, okay, here, here's the soundbite. You can believe in a strong, not just about this issue, you can believe in a strong First Amendment or you can be an originalist, but you cannot be both because the founding at no point in 1780, 91 or 1868 did any reasonable amount of people think that the First Amendment would, be, would work in this way. So, no, I don't believe me. I agree with you about that. I just don't use that method of analysis to figure out what's constitutional today. And I don't think anybody should use that method of analysis. The hypocrisy of Scalia and Thomas Joining all of these cases, I've written about it at length. We agree 100% on that. It, and I think you understated the point. So I, I, Judd Campbell wrote a great article in the Yale Law Journal about this. He was right. Um, so we agree on that. We, common ground. We found our common ground. We completely agree. I want to shift gears because we're running out of time. You, you have a piece, I think, coming out in Stanford, correct me if I'm wrong, um, that, I, that, I, that, I, that I looked at, and I'm not sophisticated enough to tro- totally understand, but it was fascinating to me. 
about um, the feminization of corporate law? Is that a fair way of putting that? Um, yes, that piece is already out okay. in the Stanford Law Review. It okay. came out in March. Okay. And the piece really looks at shareholder identity back in uh, the early, maybe the first half of the 20th century. And I reveal this sort of forgotten history in which, I mean, a lot of people are surprised by this, but over the course of the first half of the 20th century, women went from being really a minority of shareholders to a majority. They were the majority. I was of shocked American when I read that in your piece. I was shocked. Yes. What's really interesting is that this was widely known at the time. It was extensively covered by the press. There was investigative reporting on it by the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And what I argue in the article is that the fem what I call the feminization of shareholding or the feminization of capital was influencing ideas about the role, the proper role of the shareholder in corporate governance. And so in some ways, it's, it's a bit of a subversive <laughs> argument to make that some of the foundational ideas that we have in, in corporate law to this day were shaped in part by views about women <clears throat> and women's aptitude for playing a role in corporate governance. Oh, that's fascinating. So, you're, so that's fascinating. So I got to be careful here because I know not of what I speak. Um, to the extent shareholders play less of a role in corporate governance today than you would than you would like, the history of that is maybe that stems in part from the notion that well, they're only women anyway. We shouldn't let them get involved. Is that do I have that right? I don't. Yeah, I mean that that's essentially it. You know, in the twenties, late twenties, and early thirties is when you see the rise of this idea of uh, shareholder passivity. Right. It's this idea. It has a lot of currency even today in corporate law. It's this idea that shareholders are naturally passive and they should be rationally apathetic. What that means really in practice is that shareholders should give up, voluntarily give up their voting power when doing so is economically efficient. That's the way it was sort of translated through the law and economics movement. And so even today in the 21st century, you commonly hear corporate law academics talking about shareholder passivity, not as a descriptive feature. I mean, shareholders often don't vote, but as a normative idea, shareholders should be rationally passive. And I do connect that, of course, to stereotypes about women uh, and passivity in the early 20th century. But I think it also speaks to sort of the political economy of corporate citizenship, right? What kind of shareholders do we want in corporations? Well, the only smart kind of shareholder is the passive shareholder, the one who gives up power. Right. And then who gets to exercise that power? Corporate managers uh, exercise that power in their place. And what do we know about corporate managers? Well, they are basically all from the same demographic group, right? They're all older, very wealthy white men. And so it's a power shift, right? So we watch in corporate law this power shift. So a lot of my work is attentive to power dynamics in corporate governance. And that is one that fascinates me. So I, I just want to say that um, I have a very cynical view, I might, may, I might say realistic, but others would say cynical, of the value of law review articles. Um, you know, in my area, um, I read them, you know, all the time or I look at them all the time. And I think one every three years makes a difference, give or take. I mean, of the thousands that are written, I'm, I'm just very skeptical of that. But every now and then, someone writes a piece like Judd, like Judd Campbell did in Yale about the First Amendment, that is 
that I, that, that, that I know from my expertise in con law is a, would be a game changer if people took it seriously. When I, when I looked at your Stanford piece, um, I, again, I, I am no expert in corporate law. My intuition, my instinct was that was that kind of piece. Like you wrote a law review article that really, really matters and people should take it very seriously. And congratulations on that, if I'm right, because um, I, I, that's one of the, re- I mean, there were 10 reasons I wanted to have you on, but that was one of them. I mean, that, that's, it's really a great piece. I want people to read it. Can you tell, can you tell people the site so they can go find it? Oh my gosh, you're putting me on the spot. Thank you for saying all those wonderful things, but. Well, it's in Stanford Law yeah. Review. You can find it. Sarah, Sarah Hahn and Stanford Law Review. Any Google search, you'll find it. So, um, Sarah, I need to have that site like tattooed on my arm. Yeah, or something. No, no. <laughs> but, but again, I think separating the wheat from the chaff in Law Review articles in any area is very, very difficult. I think your piece does that. Um, I, I really do. I want to end with something that, um, so I'll name three names. I've named them already. Kent Greenfield at Boston College, Adam Winkler at UCLA, and Ann Tucker, my colleague here at GSU, um, have all said to me over the years in different forms. And every time I hear it, I'm not surprised, but I want my audience to hear this. When I rant, as I'm prone to do, about the Supreme Court's inability to, to really decide constitutional law cases in any way that is responsible, um, which is, you know, the core of my career, um, they three have said to me, if you think con law is bad, you should be a corporate law expert because they know nothing about corporate law and they don't care they know nothing. And we can criticize Citizens United and all the subsequent cases, forget the First Amendment, based on their corporate law ignorance. Um, Do you agree with that assessment of those three experts? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's really striking. You know, corporate law isn't that difficult. Um, I don't know. There's, I guess, I think, I feel like a myth that corporate law is somehow complicated or mm-hmm. challenging or particularly difficult. You know, it's maybe it's more the sort of uh, capital markets practice that that uh, the reality of how the capital markets works uh, work now. But you you feel as viscerally when you read these decisions by SCOTUS. They they are not capturing. <laughs> how corporate law and the securities markets and securities regulation, they don't understand it. And then it gets distorted through these bizarre opinions. And everyone in the corporate law academy, we all just freak out every time one of these opinions comes out. It's so dispiriting. When when Citizens United came out, um, Ann Tucker organized a symposium here at Georgia State. Well, actually, we both did, where I invited a bunch of con law people and she invited a bunch of corporate law people. And at the time, I think it was the first conference ever to do that, I think, where we really had half and half. Um, and, we, and it was a great conference um, and did a great job on that. Um, and uh, to a person, the corporate law people said, especially the corporate law people with some con law background, said, whatever you think about con law in the Supreme Court, corporate law is worse. And I remember thinking at the time, that's what I'm told by everybody. That's what I'm told by envi- environmental lawyers. That's what I'm told by... Um, you know, experts in other, in, in proper, whatever, whatever the area is, it, that's, part of, that's part of what led to my book and my critique of the Supreme Court. Um, if there's one thing you could say to the justices, focus on this because you've got it wrong all these years, what would it be? I reject that question. I'm so angry at the Supreme Court. I don't, I think your question accepts the validity of the sort of analysis that the Supreme Court, at least the conservative justices, 
are employing. And I really feel like they've jumped the shark a little bit. I mean, I know a lot of people say this, but I feel like there's, they're not good faith jurists anymore. I don't know. What is it that they've gotten wrong that they need to understand better? I mean, well, well, I know. I'm happy to stop with they're not good faith jurists anymore since that is a centerpiece of my academic career. So I'm, I'm happy to stop yeah. with that great phrase. They're not – Eric didn't say this, people listening to this. This is not a Siegel statement. This is a Sarah Hahn expert in corporate law, securities law, and First Amendment law who said this. They are not good faith jurists anymore. I kind of want to – Yeah, and it's like, you know, we talked about Citizens United. I mean, you know, oh, corporations have free speech rights. But when corporations turn around – and start coming forward with progressive views, right? We're going to see how committed the Supreme Court is to that viewpoint. And I, I suspect not very committed because they want the outcome that they, the political outcome. It's like the actual underlying First Amendment principle is just in service to the outcome. So I'm very disappointed about that. And I don't, I'm sorry to reject your question, but. No, 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 no. You, 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 you gave me a huge present. <laughs> No idea. Yeah. Um, no, no, no. I um, um, I, I want to get serious for once. This has been wonderful, and we're about to end it. And thank you so much for doing this. But I want to get serious about one thing. This audience knows my views that the court is not a court, and has never been a court. Actually, that's my book, and that's my work, and that's my career. Um, and whatever whatever people think of my views about that, that are formed by constitutional law. You are not the first person outside of constitutional law who has said to me something along the lines of they're just going to re- reach the results they want and prior law doesn't really matter. You're yeah. not the first person. And, 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 I, and, and by the way, I had no idea you were going to say that. I didn't invite you on this podcast to say that. That was spontaneous. I didn't know that was your position. Um, that's my career you just described. I mean, you, do, you do a lot of great things on the ground about securities. and That's my career. And I'm very – I'm just so thankful for you for saying it out loud um, because I think the American people who are listening to this need to understand that idea. Um, and it's not just a con law idea. It is a, it's a, an idea from a corporate law expert and a securities law expert. Um, yeah, any- and you don't have to be an expert in the law to perceive this. And I think that's what's so dangerous about the moment that we're in. I think everybody, ordinary citizens can – read, uh, you may, maybe you're not reading these, you know, 200 page opinions, but you can kind of skim them and listen to some of the commentary about them and get the gist, which is what you're saying. It's so demoralizing for someone who's, you know, committed their career to being a law professor, I think. What are we even doing? What are we even doing is a great question. Um, I'm about to embark upon a project that says, if you want to talk about reforming the Supreme Court, if one thinks the Supreme Court needs to be reformed, the first step of that is to identify the problem accurately, which we have not done. Because the first step, in my humble opinion, is recognizing this is not a court of law. Whatever this institution is, it is not a court of law. Now, how do you want to change it? How do you want to form it? Do you want a council of elders? Do you want a veto council? Do you want someone to tell the securities exchange? Whatever it is, but we can't get to those answers until we identify the problem correctly. And the real problem, as everyone who listens to this podcast knows, in my opinion, is that it's not a court of law. And we got to figure something else out. 
Yeah, but I mean, my contribution, I think, to this, or if I could add anything, is yeah. just that there is the role of corporate money in getting us to this moment is very significant. That it was in the 1970s when we started deregulating campaign finance. And I think, you know, maybe you can't draw a direct line between corporate spending and, and the current moment, but there's a dotted line there. I mean, I really do think that uh, con law experts uh, and corporate law experts need to spend more time in the room together because, yes. you know, yeah, the symposium that you were talking about, yes. I guess, in 2010, yeah. where you brought those two groups together, we yeah. should be doing that all the time because yes. there is a lot of important work to be done uh, at that intersection. And that is one of the reasons I've had Adam Winkler, Kent Greenfield, and you on this podcast, because the three of you are different than many most law professors because you have expertise in both areas, and that, that's great. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. This ended, this ended on, for me, the best possible note, but I also learned... I mean, the saddest and best possible note. Um, but I learned so much from you, and I, I really appreciate you coming on. This has been incredibly enjoyable. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Sarah.